1: Because a marriage is not a ceremony a marriage is what takes place after the ceremony and some of you you've you've done something at some point in your life and maybe it was a step toward God and maybe it was a good attempt but it was a ceremony in your life after that moment has not changed While he was looking for God in the shock and the awe, God showed up in the still and the small. And you know what he said to Elijah? Elijah, um, what are you doing here? And, and so just for the record, I, I think some of us, let's just be honest, if, if we heard an audible voice of the Lord today, he'd probably be getting in our face and saying, what are you doing here? What, why have you let it come to this? And so Elijah says, oh, God, I'm glad you showed up. I am your only one left. There's nobody like me. And Jezebel, Jezebel, she's she's promised she's going to kill me, and I'm just worn out. I don't have anything left to give. And did I mention, I'm the only one left. And then God says, Elijah, second time, what are you doing here? I'm just telling you, I think if we heard an audible voice of the Lord, a lot of us, a lot of us who profess to follow Christ and if we've hung out in church a lot of our life, he would look at us and how we're living and he would say, what are you doing here? And then he says, uh, by the way, you're not the only one left. There are others like you. In fact, there's 7,000 other prophets who've not kneeled to Baal. Now get up. Get back after it. Now, why is that story in Romans chapter 11? Remember, Paul's answering the question. Did God reject the Jewish people? And the answer is no. There's always been a remnant. God has always kept his people around. And the, the numbers may go down, and sometimes the numbers go may go up. But understand this, you're not the only one. And church, I want you to understand that today. Students in your classroom, in your grade, you may not see it, but you're not the only one. And college students over at USF or university, at Tampa or Hillsborough Community College, you may not recognize them, but you're not the only one. In in your workplace, you may feel like you can't stand for Christ, but you're not the only one. And in your neighborhood, it may seem like everybody else has abandoned God, but you're not the only one. Just when you think it's over, when you look closely enough, you'll see God at work. Just think about how the first century church would have responded if you told them in a couple of hundred years the seat of Christianity would be in Rome, evil Rome. And yet it was. But then imagine how the Romans would have felt, those Roman Christians, if they'd have been told in a a few hundred years the seat of Christianity will move to the English-speaking world in Europe. No way. But it did. And imagine how those in Europe, as the cathedrals begin to lessen in crowds and Christianity began to diminish in Europe. Imagine how they would have thought if you'd have told them, just wait and watch this new little upstart on the other side of the ocean, the country that's just being formed and born. It's going to become the biggest mission-sending people that have ever existed in Christianity. They'd have like been, no. Imagine us 50 years ago if, if we'd have said, These churches that are full all around us, they're going to start closing their doors. Crowds are going to go away. Americans are going to reject their faith. But while that's happening, the faith is going to explode in India, and the faith is going to explode in communist China, and the faith is going to explode in Iran because God's not done. God's still at work. He's still moving. I want you to understand God's not dead and he's not done. And until his return, he will always be at work among a remnant of his people. And I don't know about you, church, but I want to be a part of that remnant. I want to be among those who are faithful. I want to be among those who see God is working in our midst. Someone once put it this way, if if you're not dead, God's not done. He's not done with you. But the fourth proof that Paul gave is he says, God has always had a plan, one plan, his grace. Look at verse 5. So two at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on work. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What he's saying is, sure, God had his hand among these Jewish people, but it was never about just the family they were born into, or it was never about these legalistic things that they did. It was always about the grace of God. And it's still that way today. Paul would go on to write in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you've been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. In the Greek, it's that word poema. We are his poem. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Scripture makes it clear. The only way that sinful people like you and me can ever approach our holy God is a result of his mercy and grace. It's always been about grace. So God didn't reject the Jewish people. But that leads to another question, doesn't it? Did their rejection of him cause him to respond so harshly that he says, I'm washing my hands of this, I'm done? Or maybe, as some have taught, When you read the New Testament, should we say that the church is now in the place of the Jewish people? That God doesn't value the Jewish nation as he once did? The Bible calls us, if we're not Jewish, Gentiles. So, unless you're Jewish, welcome Gentiles. Are we the backup plan? Was that God's default? Look at verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble as so to fall beyond recovery, have they, have they blown it and can never be recovered? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. What is he describing? He's saying God is still at work. He's not dead. He's not done. But there are three historic stages of Israel's response to Jesus. The first stage is the stage that Paul was living in. Did you know that when Paul and the other apostles went to a city, they would go to one place in every city first? Somebody tell me what that place was. It was a synagogue. They would go to the Jewish house of worship. Why? Because they wanted Jews to understand the Messiah has come. Jesus is here. But most Jews in the synagogue rejected Jesus. So then they would go out into the city streets. And they shared with us, Gentiles. And, and we had the opportunity. So he said, first, most Jews are going to reject. Then there's this other season of history that we're living in now. And in that season, he says, people of this Jewish heritage, they're, they're going to be envious of those of us who have Christ. Because we're saying that the same God that they worshipped loves us. And we're saying that he sent Jesus to bless and to save us. And and so they look at our joy and, and the life that we live and the grace that we experience. And it creates this kind of, I wish I had that. But then there's a third stage. And that third stage is what he describes. Well, he describes it in verse 26. Look at this. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. He's talking about what happens at the end times, that there will be a day where there's a mass turnaround from the the children of Israel, not Israel as a nation state that we know it that began in the 1950s, but the ethnic people who are now spread all around the world. As we look to the return of Christ, the Bible talks about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Who go around the world and we see this great movement of god And what's the response of that look at verse 12 But if the transgression Means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the gentiles How much greater riches will there be with their full inclusion with that brain now? All right. I lost some of you there, but let me just tell you what this means. How do we bring this home? How do we apply this listen very carefully? this means no one, say no one, no one can outrun the reach of God's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what that secret sin is, you're not out of the reach of God's grace. That means you and that means you those you love. So what did i say while i go if god's not dead you're not done so for some of you today that should mean a genuine turning to christ but for all of us if we're followers of christ that should mean that we turn up the heat on praying for those in our little corner of the world that need christ So we're heading toward Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate what it means to follow Christ. Here's my question for you. Who's your one? Who's that one family member, that one friend, or that one classmate or work associate that you're praying for, that they would know Christ, that you're earnestly going before God and saying, God, save them, change them before it's too late. Don't give up on anyone in your little corner of the world. If you're a Christ follower and you have people in your corner of the world that don't know Jesus, that's the message I want you to hear today. Don't give up on those children. Don't give up on those parents. Don't give up on those siblings. Don't give up on those friends. Keep taking them to the Lord. We all need God's grace. But there's one last thing he says. He says we can't take God's grace for granted. You can't outrun God's grace, but you can't take it for granted. Now, look at verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, this is about to get confusing again, but let me just divert and give you a bonus. If the part of the dough, the first part of the dough, is holy, what's he talking about? And he uses this word first fruits. What does that mean? In the Old Testament, the people of God had a practice that would regularly cause them to remind themselves that everything good they had came from God. Now, in the New Testament, we have that in the book of James. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. Did you know that? Anything good you have in your life came from the God. It's it's not because you work so hard. It's not because you're so cute. It's not because he likes you that much. everything good in your life came from God. So this first fruit principle started in the farming society. That's how they earned their living. So they would take from their crops the first and the best of the crops, and they would literally take it to the temple. And that would be an offering to the Lord. All right? And so that began to develop among the Jewish people. And so when they would make bread, they would take from the dough that they were needing to make the bread. And the first batch of bread that they would make from that first piece of dough They would take it to the temple and they would give it to the priest. And so what God's children, what people who follow God began to give back to him became known as the first fruits. And so when the tithe was introduced, 10% of that which was given, when it was introduced in scripture, it was a first fruits offering. It was a principle of understanding everything I have came from God. So I'm just going to give to him first to remind him and remind me that I get it. That's why in our church, we're not afraid to talk about generosity. You're either living in obedience or disobedience when it comes to biblical generosity. Either you're giving your first and best to the Lord or you're not. And I would just tell you, God never blesses disobedience. And, and if you're struggling financially and you feel like you can't seem to, to get a grip of things, thing, I would just tell you, 53 years, I've never outgiven God. I've made a lot of expenditures that I wish I could undo. I've created some debts that I've had to repay. But I've never given anything to the Lord that I thought I wish I wouldn't have done that. All right. Now, how does this continue and why does he say that? He says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root. The root supports you. This gets really confusing, especially for me, because I'm not good with plants. I mean, we bought two flowers because we were having our staff over to our house around Christmas. We bought them the week of Christmas, and by Christmas, they were dead. I mean, we're not good with plants at the Purvis house. But I, I do understand what he's saying here. He said, so you've got this original root that God created, and up from that original root grew this Jewish tree, the Jewish people. And yet some of those Jewish people rejected God, and, and so those limbs were cut off. But but God made his sustenance, his goodness available to everybody. So he took from this other tree, this Gentile tree, and he did this thing I didn't even know you could do. He, he, he took a part of that tree and grafted it into the Jewish tree, and it began to grow. And you then began to feast on those same roots of God's goodness and of God's sustenance. But he says, be, be, be careful. Don't. Don't think you can take advantage of God's grace because your limbs could be cut off. Just like the Jewish limbs were cut off. So he goes on to say in verse 19, you'll say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Think about that, just as some of those Jewish people, part of God's family, part of the tree of life, just as they rejected God, when we reject God, we're cut off. So here's what I would be thinking if I were sitting where you are. Wait a second, preacher. Don't we believe in that thing called the perseverance of the saints? Don't we believe in the doctrine of eternal security? Are are you saying that we can lose our salvation? Nope. Not what I'm saying. In in fact, it's not what Paul said. He, He said, remember, you stand. We have to look at why they were removed. He says they were removed because of complacency or what Isaiah would call lip service. Remember Isaiah 29? The prophet Isaiah said, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts dishonor me. So you come to worship and you raise your hand and oh the goodness of God but you leave this place and this space and you look at the rest of your life all the other hours in the week and it's not there. He was saying, "Hey, Jewish people, just because you were born into a Jewish family, you're not only you're not automatically going to make it on the tree." And you knew Gentiles just because you know how to name the name of christ that doesn't mean you're a part of the family of god Man, i'm just telling you this is hard for me but it's my life because i grew up in south carolina the buckle of the bible belt where cultural christianity is king and when i was growing up everybody said they went to somebody's church but it was Golden Corral Christianity. We had a Golden Corral even in Hartsville, South Carolina. And Golden Corral, you go to the buffet and you take what you want, but you leave what you don't want. Kind of builder bear Christianity. We make Jesus in our image the way we want him to be rather than being conformed and transformed into his image. So, we say we're Christian. But you look at our life and we've never done the one thing he tells us to do, which is to make another disciple. We've never spent our life investing in the life of another. Or we don't faithfully attend his church. Or we never steward the resources financially that he's given us. Or we've been at this a long time and we've never told anybody else about him. And so we come up with an interesting theology to excuse ourselves. We say it like this. Well, I I accept him as Savior, but I I struggle struggle making him my Lord. And there's only one problem. That's nowhere in the Bible. We can't make Jesus in our image. We're made in his image. And when we come to him, he does desire to be our savior, but he demands to be our Lord. What Paul is saying here is true Christian faith is evidenced by the fact that you've endured, that you've managed to walk through the hardships and the hurdles that come in life. And yet your faith, though had moments of failure, has stood strong. That's what he means in verse 20 when he says, granted, they were broken off by unbelief, but you stand by faith. So don't get arrogant about it, but recognize it and tremble. That's what the writer of Hebrews was saying in Hebrews 3 verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sinfulness, by sin's deceitfulness, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to the original conviction firmly to the very end. God's word is very clear. Once we experience true salvation by grace, we are saved to the end in in john 10 jesus said it this way nothing can snatch you out of my father's hand in ephesians 4 the apostle paul put it this way when you have that relationship with god saved by grace through faith the holy spirit of god seals you to the day of redemption to the day of christ's return once you're truly saved you are always saved but once you're truly saved true salvation endures to the end so we cannot take god's grace for granted our faith is not something that's just a cultural understanding, and it's certainly not something that's just ceremonial. So let me let me just beg you as a pastor who maybe sometimes out of a good intent has even aided in this misunderstanding. There's not a magic prayer. It's not just raising your hand or walking down an aisle or getting in a bathtub and being dipped or dunked. It's not being part of a church it's not just a ceremony can you imagine can you imagine a marriage ceremony that was glamorous and lavish But then after the ceremony, the the husband goes into the honeymoon and gets to the hotel with his new bride. And he says, wasn't that great? She says, yes, that's an awesome ceremony. And Man, it was glamorous. It was lavish. And he says, great. This is going to be a great marriage. But for right now, I got to go out because the boys are are waiting for me. And and we're going to go find some girls. And it's going to be a fun night. I don't think that would be a very happy honeymoon. Because a marriage is not a ceremony. A marriage is what takes place after the ceremony. And some of you, you've you've done something at some point in your life, and maybe it was a step toward God, and maybe it was a good attempt, but it was a ceremony in your life after that moment has not changed. and You don't realize it because you're not a bad person, but you're lost. So I would just ask you, as I read this passage of Scripture, it it makes me want to look deeply inside. So what do you see when you look at your life in light of these truths of God's Word? Now, here's some good news I want to end with. The good news is, one thing is very clear. God wants everybody to be saved. Now, I know we're all different. And truth is, just true confession, when I'm sitting listening to preaching, I'm usually pretty quiet. But there are some moments that kind of demand an amen. In other words, that's right, or preach it, preacher, or whatever you say. And that's one of those truths. So I'm going to say it again and give you a chance to redeem yourself, okay? God wants everyone to be saved. I mean, that's really good news, and it's right out of this passage. Look at verse 32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. That's what we learn in Romans three twenty-three: All have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. But so that he may have mercy on them. Say that last word. Now listen to it from 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people everywhere to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, For there's one God, one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time.
2: You've been listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. The Barnabas Effect is here to provide listeners like you with biblical truth and spiritual encouragement. But it can't be done without your financial support. Go to missionhill.org and click on the Give tab. Your financial support helps us reach those seeking truth about God and themselves. Thank you for giving at missionhill.org. Be encouraged by The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. Weekday mornings at 9 here on Faith Talk Tampa.